Uh, Lord Jesus, it's our desire today to brag about you, knowing that we gain uh, your loss. We get your reward. I ask today that you would speak to us, uh, break open our chests, and massage your truth into us. And I pray today specifically, Father, that you would speak to us about connecting to you, what it means, how it looks like. Lord, we give you permission to stir us and to quicken our hearts today. We need it, in fact. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not have a connection with you, I ask in, in Jesus' name that you would communicate yourself in a way that we can understand, that we can draw near. Oh Lord, we also open up our hands. We've been gripping pretty hard some things this week, maybe worries, or maybe we've been holding anger or nursing just busyness, and we've been frenetic. And this morning we ask you to help us let go. Uh, surrendering to you, as we sang a minute ago, Lord, surrendering to our design, to the way you've made us, because you've made us for our hearts to rest in you. I also want to ask, Father, that you would forgive us of our sin. We bring this morning a boatload of pursuits, finding our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from you. We have dug our own cisterns, and they've been ineffective. They don't hold water. And we have ignored you, the spring of living water. And we ask you to forgive us this morning and to make yourself plain and to flow and to fill us. We bring as many different emotional and spiritual dispositions this morning as there are people here, God. And so... We ask for that miracle of you just speaking to each one of us where we are and as we are. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this is our third week in a series about connecting with God. Last week we said that there are two habits that are indispensable to connecting with God. Last week we said there are two habits... There are two life practices that are indispensable in us building a connection with God. The first of those habits was that we talked about was practicing creative devotion. So you have to have the practice of a regular time of relating to God in order to have a relationship with God. The second habit that we're going to talk about this morning is critical to a real and dynamic connection with God, and that's using our resources with wisdom and purpose. As I was thinking about this, I thought about, you know, I'm old enough so that I can remember television when it came through airwaves, and you had to have some kind of an antenna. I remember, it's embarrassing to say, but I remember our first color television set at my home in South Carolina, and my mother had these two, uh, you know, rabbit ears antenna to receive the television signals because there was no such thing as cable television reception at that point. And in order to receive a television signal, in order to have something to watch, you had to be, first of all, relatively near 
a television station because, for instance, on our rabbit ears, we couldn't receive the television channel from Chicago, for instance. You, you had to be relatively near. And then the antenna, some of you were, you're old enough to remember these days, the antenna had to be kind of pointing in the right direction in order to receive the signal. Well, there are habits, there are disciplines, there are patterns in our life that encourage a connection with God. And we said two of those are absolutely indispensable. The first is the habit of a regular devotional life, a time of connecting to him. For some of us, we try to do that every day. That's the pattern in, in fact, in the Psalms that we read repeatedly and a pattern that I would encourage. But I've also said, I want you to find a model that works for you and how it is that you connect to him and then set a goal and work that goal this year. And it has to center around God's Word, it has to center around the Bible in order for that to be life-giving and nourishing. Well, today we want to talk about the second habit, and that's using our resources with wisdom and purpose. How we use our resources is a very big deal. We know this from a global perspective. It seems like half of the conflicts around the world today and really throughout the 20th century have been directly because of our need for and our use of resources, especially oil and natural gas, and the conflicts that aren't specifically about the use of resources, they eventually involve it in some way. Resource allocation is an equally important issue in our personal lives. In fact, in order to maintain a real and dynamic connection to God, in order to maintain a real and dynamic relationship with God, we have to use our time, our talent, and our treasure wisely and purposefully. In order to maintain a real and dynamic relationship with God, we have to use our time, our talent, and our treasure wisely and purposely. We're going to look at a section from the Bible today that underscores this point for us. Now, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as we read through this, I want you to note, according to verse 9 of this section, the wrong use of our resources can be deadly. And according to verse 19, The right use of our resources can be profoundly life-giving. The right view of our resources and use of our resources is profoundly significant in determining the health of our souls. So we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 19. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look with me. If you have a Bible app, open it up to 1 Timothy. It will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verses 3 through 19, and this is really a a very pointed and practical passage in which Paul kind of lays out this principle for us that resource allocation is a critical issue. We don't automatically see the connection often, but the use of our resource is critical in our connection to God. In the middle of this section, he's really going to open and close with some really practical pointed points about this principle. But in the middle of this section, I want you to notice that he's going to riff on Jesus for a minute, and we'll have a comment about that at the very end. If you would, let's go old school and stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 19, and listen to this. This is Paul talking primarily about money, because, you know, money really may be the most critical, it's at least the most practical and the most tangible resource that we have. But what he says here about money, he certainly intends about all of our resources. So this involves our time, our talent, and our treasure. But we're going to talk specifically today about money. 
If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, he's conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words, don't you know people like that, that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind. And listen to what he says about these false teachers who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. He goes on, but look, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is where real gain is found. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, Timothy he's talking to, his young charge, You, flee from all this. Don't even get anywhere near that kind of thinking. We'll talk about that kind of thinking in a minute. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Now, Timothy, he's saying, command those who are rich in this present world, and that's us. We've looked at this passage before, so I've said right here, gateway, pay attention. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Commend them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter. And then he ends with a train of personal messages to Timothy. You may be seated. One of my favorite authors, a pastor and best-selling author, is a guy named John Piper. He says this, he says that money, listen to this, money is the currency of Christian hedonism, according to Piper. He uses the word hedonism to be intentionally provocative. Hedonism is, you know, we think of it as the wanton, unregulated pursuit of our own pleasure. Piper calls money the currency of Christian hedonism. Hedonism is usually thought of as wildly selfish and ungoverned and wrong. But Piper provokes his readers by suggesting that it's not wrong to pursue your own pleasure. In fact, it's inevitable. The wrong part is how we pursue them. 
The passage we read begins, first of all, as you notice, with a rebuke for teachers who create the desire in their followers and in themselves to get rich because of their connection to God. They want to use their connection with God as a means of gain. You know, this can be true in a very direct way. I can only speak from my own experience. You may have had other kinds of experience with this, but I grew up in uh, the South in the Bible Belt. I grew up in South Carolina, and my parents would regularly take me to the local Baptist church. And in South Carolina, there are more Baptists than there are people. And in the South, you had to go to the right church if you wanted to be successful in business. You had to be seen at church, and you had to be known as a nice church-going person. In fact, in a very direct way, the perception of godliness could be used for gain. This can also be true indirectly. Many teachers today that place, some of you have heard these kind of folks on television, they, they place a dangerous emphasis on God's desire to bless us. God indeed wants to bless us, but when we overly emphasize that and we speak and talk about that blessing as if it were always to make us more comfortable, we get into trouble. They create the expectation that if we get it right with God, then He's bound to bless us and bless us financially. Paul rejects this kind of thinking altogether. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, Paul reminds Timothy. So don't think of it as such, Timothy. But I want you to notice in this what he doesn't say. And go back this afternoon and look at this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And notice what God does not say through Paul. He doesn't say that godliness is not a means to financial gain because Christians are the kind of people who aren't interested in such things. Christians are the kind of people who don't even think about financial gain. He doesn't say that. Do you get that? He doesn't say... Christians are the kind of people who do things without regard for their own gain. We are the kind of people who aren't interested in our own happiness. He doesn't say that. That's what we might expect Him to say. This is what we sometimes think that God wants us to think, but this isn't what God tells us here. I quoted this guy last week, but the French philosopher Blaise Pascal was absolutely right when he observed this. Listen to Pascal. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend toward this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, just attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but toward this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. End quote. But aren't we supposed to be people who aren't interested in our gain or in our happiness? Surprisingly, this is not what God says. I believe God acknowledges our desire for happiness. I believe He created it. But what He does is to offer us a deeper, richer kind of happiness. A real happiness, what He calls truly life. He offers us what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. And Paul offers up an argument for Christian hedonism in this passage. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, Paul says, but there's something better. There's a truly greater gain when true godliness is matched with contentment. Instead of telling us not to worry about our own sense of gain, he actually argues that there's a deeper, better kind of gain available to us. Piper is absolutely right when he says, quote, 
that it's not only permitted but commanded by God that we pursue our full and lasting pleasure. And that all the evils in the world come not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak that we settle for fleeting pleasures that do not truly satisfy our deepest souls, but in the end, destroy them. End quote. You see, our resources are the currency of Christian hedonism. This means we can use our resources either to secure our ruin or to secure our truest happiness. We can use our resources either to secure our ruin or to secure our truest happiness. This is, by the way, true of all of our resources and it's extremely true of our money. That's why money is the chief topic of this passage. That's why the wise and purposeful use of our resources is an indispensable part of our connection to God. Our resources can be used to launch us into a deeper connection with God or they can be used to drive us in the exact opposite direction. When you decide to buy a car using what money you have instead of taking out a car loan, that decision has a profound effect on your connection with God. Over the the long haul and immediately, it has a profound effect on the health of your soul. When you decide to watch TV instead of exercise, or to sleep instead of going to a corporate worship gathering, or to play video games instead of pursuing devotional time, those decisions, each one, have an immediate and a long-term effect on the health of your soul and on your connection to God. The wise and purposeful use of our resources is indispensable in us building a sustaining connection with God. My family likes to play the board game, Settlers of Catan. My children will occasionally cheat at that game. And the game, Settlers of Catan, for those of you who know that game, it's a game where you build settlements on places on the board. Those places on the board are just next to numbered squares or octagonals or whatever they are. And when that number is rolled, you gather resources. And the game is built on gathering and then employing those resources And the more resources you have, the more you can build. And the more you build, the more resources you gather. And then you collect points along the way. And in the end, somebody cheats and they win with 10 victory points. Often, the collection of those resources depends much in the same way our lives do. The collection of those resources depends somewhat on your own decision. The collection of the resources but it also depends on forces outside of yourself. In this case, the role of the dice. But the employment of those resources is all about your decision-making. And ultimately, the game is won or lost on the decisions that you make. And in this case, the role of the dice. Our lives, in reality, are far less random. Certainly, the resources that you and I have Moses reminded his people at the very beginning of their journey into the promised land, look, when you get into the promised land, do not forget the Lord your God. You're going to get in and things are going to go well for you and you're going to be tempted to think, wow, by the strength of my own hand I've made all of this happen. But Moses says, don't forget the Lord your God because it's He that provided you even the strength of your own hand. So there are resources that have been given to you. You guys are the kind of people who got a lot of things for free. You're smart. You're hardworking. 
Many of you had good families. You got good education and you had lots of opportunities. You got a lot of things in life for free. And a lot of those resources were allocated to you outside of your control. You know, the more you think about how much you did to make all of that happen, the further away you get from the truth. But then you make decisions every day, every moment, in how you're going to allocate those resources. And those decisions are big. Those decisions will ultimately decide whether or not you win or lose in your connection with God. Those decisions are indispensable in you having a sustaining, healthy connection with God and a healthy soul. So how? How do we use our money to secure our truest happiness? And how do we use it wisely and purposefully? And again, what we say about money can be said about our, all of our resources, our time, our talent, our treasure. The same question and the same answer will apply. How do we use our time, our talent, our energy, our creativity to secure our truest happiness? So, how do we use our money to secure our happiness? How do we use it wisely and purposefully? Well, I'm going to say two things here that are going to summarize God's teaching to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The first thing we need to do, if we're going to use our money to secure our truest happiness and not our ruin, the first thing we need to do is to reject the notion that our happiness can be won through financial gain. So we have to first of all reject the, the thinking that our happiness can be won through financial gain. We know this, but let's, acknowledge, let's remind ourselves this morning, let's acknowledge this notion is deeply ingrained in our culture. This notion is part and parcel of the American dream. This notion is what makes the rest of the world want to come to America. A 2012 article from The Atlantic, this is interesting, observed that over the past 100 years we have turned yesterday's luxury products into today's necessities. No slam on this. We have all of these products in our home. It demonstrates the point that it's never enough for us. And the article specifically makes that point. Listen to this list. In 1900... Less than 10% of families, less than 10% owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families in America owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning. I remember growing up in those days. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or color TV. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the Internet. (laughs) The world has changed a lot. (laughs) The article concluded by saying this. Today, at least 90% of all households in the country have a stove, electricity, a car, a fridge, clothes washer, air conditioning, color TV, microwave, and cell phone. They make our lives better. They might even make us happier. This is now an article from The Atlantic, not me. But they are, it seems, never enough. The standard for what is necessary for us continues to rise. We want more. We believe we need more. Paul says, in fact... The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, 
We've said we need to reject the notion that we can secure our happiness through financial gain. That we're going to be happier if we just get that next raise. Why should we reject the belief that our happiness can be won through financial gain? Why? And Paul, even in the ancient Near East, knows how deeply ingrained this idea can be. So he gives three reasons why we should reject the notion that our truest happiness can be won through financial gain. He knows this is a stubborn idea. So three reasons. One, reason number one, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. He says, we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. By definition, it's silly to hold on. It's, first of all, impractical. The second reason he gives us for why we should reject the notion that our happiness can be won through financial gain. Second reason, making financial gain leads in a really bad direction. According to Paul, he says, the wrong view of money plunges us into ruin. In other words, this isn't a small matter. This is a big deal. It has devastating consequences. So that kind of thinking, it's impractical. And it has devastating consequences. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, the worldwide evangelist Billy Graham recalled a story that I think vividly demonstrates this principle. Billy Graham said this. His wife's name was Ruth. He said, some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. Finally, he said, I am the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want. I have my private plane, my helicopters plural. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him, Graham says, and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill later that day to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, and he too was 75, and he too was a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ, for life, and for others. I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I am the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham relates how He asked his wife, Ruth, after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She didn't have to reply because we both already knew the answer. Look, most of us, or at least many of us, we're here today because we agree with this principle, theoretically. I mean, that's not the only reason you're here, but most of us agree with this. We should reject the notion that our true happiness can be won and secured through financial gain. But we're still assaulted by the notion that our happiness can be won in this way. This notion is so deeply ingrained in our culture and therefore in our own thinking that we don't even notice it. So we have to nearly constantly remind ourselves that this is not true. Or we will invest the hope for happiness in the deck being finished. 
And we need the money to do that. Or the vacation this summer to Disney World or to France. Or the kitchen countertops to be changed and the kitchen to be remodeled. We will invest our happiness in those things. And it's impractical. And it has potentially devastating consequences. And he gives us a third reason. Later in the passage, verse 17, God gives us a third reason to reject this thinking. He says, money is so uncertain. Anybody here remember the recession? If you've got a lot of money in the bank, you remember the recession. It's undependable. It's impractical. It has potentially devastating consequences. And this kind of thinking is just, it's undependable. Remember, what we're rejecting is the belief that our truest happiness can be secured through financial gain. We are not rejecting money. We are rejecting money as a goal. Paul tells Timothy, in fact, to flee this kind of thinking. Listen, great personal gain is possible for many of us, for many of you. You have the kind of talent and the time to do it. And we are right to desire it. But it comes, our ultimate gain comes through godliness with contentment. Financial gain cannot secure our truest happiness. So we've got to reject the notion that it can. And there's a second thing that he offers up that is even more important. So first of all, let's reject the notion that our happiness can be secured through financial gain. Secondly, if we want to use our resources to secure our truest happiness, we will use our resources to be generous and to do good deeds. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's that simple. I'm going to read again verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So he begins, first of all, of course, with the negative. He says, look, tell them not to be arrogant, and that's easy to do when you're wealthy. And he also says, don't put your hope in wealth. And that's also easy to do when you have a lot of it. A professor, Kathleen Voss from the University of Minnesota's Carlston School of Management, conducted a series of long-term studies on the attitudes that accompany wealth. I want you to listen to some of her conclusions. This is the researcher, Dr. Voss, talking. A mounting body of research is showing Wealth can actually change how we think and behave. For example, this is her talking based on her research. Rich people have a harder time connecting with others. They tend to show less empathy. They are less charitable. They are less likely to help when someone is in trouble. And they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. So let's keep things as they are because they have, after all, benefited me. She concludes, money, in other words, changes who you are. (laughs) One interesting feature of the studies, I thought, they used a research technique known as priming. 
So they led people to believe that they would be, this sounds cruel, but they led people to believe that they would be receiving a large sum of money. And then they found that even the mere suggestion of getting more money made people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statements like, some groups of people are inferior to others. So they found that the percentage of people that went up in more agreement there were lots of these that were equally chilling. The statistics were not only significantly different, incredibly different between the group that had no expectation of money and the group that thought they were going to get a lot of money in agreeing with statements like, some groups of people are simply inferior to others. Money changed their opinion about that. That's why Paul tells us don't be arrogant. That's why Paul tells us don't put your hope in wealth. It's uncertain, it's undependable, it's impractical, and it's deadly dangerous. Then he gives us the positive side of using our resources to secure our truest happiness. Instead, he says, put your hope in God, who gives us what he gives us for our enjoyment. And be generous and do good deeds. We can use our resources in a variety of ways. We can use our resources to pursue pleasure, at least temporarily. We can use our resources to build comfort or convenience for ourselves, at least temporarily. But if we want to be happy, if we want to find our truest satisfaction, we will use our resources with wisdom and purpose. This means we will reject the idea that our happiness can be secured through financial gain, and we will be generous, and we will do good deeds. Let me give you a couple of really practical examples. I knew a guy who regularly, I think it was weekly, but I don't remember, this was years ago, regularly took $50 to work. This was many years ago, so today it would probably have to be 100 He took $50 to work, I think it was once a week, tucked it in his wallet, and he would spend the entire morning looking for someone who seemed down or discouraged or simply alone or needed any kind of lift, and he would invite him out to lunch, and it was always on him. It was just a way for him to be generous. That ultimately, by the way, would lead to a conversation or two. The third or fourth time he takes the same person out to lunch or the same group out to lunch, no, it's all on me. Why are you doing this on the way back to the office? Well, you know, I have a relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, and I just he's laid it on my heart to be generous and... It's just one of the ways I'm generous. Say, what? Yeah, you know, this is just a way that... I know someone who has made it their goal to be of service anytime a neighbor is outside and in need. I heard this a few years ago. This is very convicting for me. Because usually when my neighbors are... Plug up your ears, Jan, Marianne. But usually when my neighbors are outside doing something, I get in the house as quick as I can. They made it their goal any time they saw their neighbor outside and in need, they would go and offer help. This meant grocery bags or planting a bush in their yard. There are families here at Gateway that give profoundly to Gateway. There are families here at Gateway that take their annual income and do according to how the Bible prescribes. They take their annual income, and we'll use an easy number, let's say it's $100,000. For some of you, it's more than that, for many of you. They take that number, divide it by 10, and that number 
goes to the church or to kingdom causes. That's right. It's not the offering basket is passed and they take out whatever change is in their wallet. They have decided before the year begins, we're going to give a tenth of everything we make to kingdom causes. There are people here at Gateway, there are families here at Gateway who've been doing that for years faithfully. By the way, don't anybody feel guilty. I have no idea how much any of you give and don't want to know. So don't tell me. I know there are families who've been doing that for years here at Gateway. We are in the process of doing something that I think will be the most exciting thing that happens in the history of Gateway. And there have been some pretty exciting things. But we're in the process of building a facility right now, kind of across the street on Gum Spring Road. And it's going to create immense opportunity for us to serve our community and to be generous to our community. So I think this is just going to be a thrilling chapter in Gateway's life. But in order to do that, God has asked us to be profoundly generous. There are families here at Gateway who have given financially for years. They've taken their income, they've taken 10% out of it, and they've given that to Gateway and to Kingdom Causes. And now, for the next few years, they have said, you know what, we're going to do that same amount again just to the building while we continue to give to Gateway. In effect, they're giving 20% of their income to Kingdom Causes. Look, this is not a stump speech. You're going to hear stump speeches. You're going to hear me regularly try to raise money because we're going to need a lot of money to build that building. This isn't a stump speech. This is all about you being selfish. This is about you figuring out how to use your resources to secure your truest and highest happiness. This is about you figuring out how to find the most life for yourself. And one of those ways is to be generous. And extraordinarily so. Take a hundred bucks to work this week and ask three people out to lunch with you. And do it again in two weeks. And two weeks after that. And somebody's going to say, let me pay. No, you know, honestly, I feel like God has told me to do this. I mean, it sounded like Ed, but I think it was God. (laughs) And they're going to say, what? And they're going to think a couple of things. They're going to think, you are a weirdo. And they're going to think, that's actually pretty cool. And sometime they're going to say, you know what? What? Can you, I mean, tell me more. And decide. Decide how much you're going to give. Don't let it be haphazard. Decide. And when you're deciding, I want you to decide like this. I want to be as happy as I can be. So I'm going to figure out how I can give the absolute most money that I can give because that's the way to secure my truest happiness. One final note. That middle section, go back and read it later. Don't have time to talk about it. Jesus Christ is a central figure in this whole drama. Verses 11 through 16 is just, you know, it's like Paul can't help himself. He's got to riff. It's a benediction about Jesus Christ. He is central to this entire story, to this drama in our lives. Because Jesus Christ has made life available to us, real life, then we don't have to spend all our energy pursuing it in the wrong places. In partying, or in acquiring, or in insulating ourselves, or in pursuing random pleasure. 
We can pursue real life, real satisfaction, real happiness in our connection with God because Jesus Christ has made that possible. So let's use our resources to secure our truest and highest happiness. Let's sing something this morning in response to this. Let's take a moment and respond. So I want you, if you would, just bow with me for a minute in prayer, and then we're going to try to respond to what we've heard God say today. And let's let him speak to us and through us today. So let's pray. Okay, so let me put this in its larger context, this whole series of weeks that we've been talking about this. We said in the first week, we looked at, had a conversation with a a psalmist who kind of wrote a, a song, a long song, riffing on the idea of his connection to God and where that's found and how. And he made a really interesting point, I thought. We chased that down in another place in uh, the prophet Jeremiah. We said, Jeremiah makes the point to his people, still true today, that, you know, we're thirsty. We're hungry. We have this need in us. And it's, I believe, and I know many of you do too, it's a God-shaped need. And so we can fill that up with him, or if we don't, we will fill it up with something else. And the something else never satisfies. So then that brings us to the day where we've kind of said, look, we gathering resources, not only is it not a bad thing, it's a very, very good thing. And we can gather those resources, and we can use those resources either in a way that satisfies that need, that hunger, Or we can use those resources in a way that's undependable and impractical and dangerous. And we can find false satisfactions. So we can use our resources to really find our truest happiness and the life that's offered to us. And to support that effort, we can fund that effort. We can fund the effort of finding our real life and our truest happiness. Or we can fund another kind of effort that is illusory and is a vapor and it seems like it produces something but it slips through our fingers. So on the one side is using our resources in Jesus' name to be generous and to do good. And the other side is using our resources to provide immediate comfort and pleasure And it's illusory. And it leads, of course, to the kind of thinking that wants more of it. Because it's illusory. It slips through our fingers, so we need more. Because this is obviously how I'm going to be happiest. And so I I need more, obviously, because that worked for five minutes. But 15 minutes later, I was depressed again. So let's see if we can find enough to make it last 10 minutes. And it's a losing game. So we're going to sing a song together that I hope will provide for you a moment, uh, a moment of prayer and a moment of reflection. Use this song this way. Don't waste this time. Use this to create a moment of connection with Him. So let's stand together. We are hungry. And all of you is more than enough. All of me for every thirst and Every need is you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you. 
is more than enough.